Hello, and welcome to Business Without Bullshit, where we take a sideways look on modern businesses, talking to founders and entrepreneurs about the problems they face and how they solve them. I'm Andy Ori, and alongside me is my co-host, Pippa Sturt. Hi, Andy. Hello, Pippa. And a quick reminder, well, if you've got time, don't worry if you don't, but, you know, rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or on social media, you'll find at B-I-Z without B-S, which should be a number plate. Uh, now, with that being said, our guest this week is David B. Horn, I like the B, founder of Add Then Multiply, a consultancy working exclusively with business founders who want to grow fast. Who doesn't? David trained as a chartered accountant, way with PwC, boo, <laughs> and went on to be a CFO of two companies listed on London's alternative investment market, hooray, where he raised more than 100 million in funding, lots of zeros, and has transacted more than 20 companies, very impressive. David is also the author of Add Then Multiply, How Small Businesses Can Think Like Big Businesses and Achieve Exponential Growth, which won the Business Self-Development category at the Business Book Awards 2020 and was number one on Amazon. Very good. David is also the founder of Funding Focus, an educational business which aims to raise awareness and give support to women and racial minorities who face an uneven playing field when trying to raise capital for their businesses, a subject close to my co-host's heart. We're in very good company indeed. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Very good. So, David, what's keeping you busiest at the moment then out of all those things? What's keeping me busiest at the moment uh, is dealing with the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, because oh, we... Everybody's favourite people. Oh, There's absolutely. another word for the C. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> and the F. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we um, announced on the 10th of March that uh, we are launching a new investment trust, uh, which will be a premium listed business on the London Stock Exchange, uh, hopefully. Um, I've got to be careful what I can and can't say due to regulatory reasons, but we have announced that we are uh, in discussions with the Stock Exchange and the FCA to get all of the necessary approvals and uh, launch what will be, in effect, a late-stage venture, early-stage private equity fund. We're listing it on the London Stock Exchange for a number of reasons, uh, which we can get into later in the discussion. Let's just unpick some of that because it's 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 a minefield of acronyms and uh, madness listing, but a premium listing. What's a premium listing? So, Is there a budget one? Uh, yeah, the budget one's AIM. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and then there's the main market. The main market. And yeah. then within the main market, there is a segment called the premium listing. And it's primarily for the really, really big companies. But for some quirk of history, investment trusts also automatically qualify for premium listing. An investment trust, this isn't a company, this is a trust. This is a fund. A it's fund. called an investment trust. So okay. it, is, it, is, it is a PLC, um, but it, is, it, it will be run and operated as a fund. Okay. Uh, which will uh, invest in businesses where one or more of the founders is female uh, and or ethnic minority uh, and or um, non-binary gender. Uh, businesses located in the UK and Europe uh, and established businesses that are turning over at least a million pounds or if they're scientific businesses where there's a regulatory restriction on them not being able to earn any revenue yet because of trials or approvals or whatever, uh, where they have at least a million pounds of uh, demonstrable IP. And when you say late VC, sort of early private equity, how do you balance that sort of, you know, because the obvious difference between the two being one 
minority stake and the other majority will still be minority uh, will still be minority stake but i imagine particularly uh, with some of the bigger ones we're looking at you know we'll be looking, looking at making at chunky invest no 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 okay. we will be a fund we won't take minority stakes my my in my plc previous plc mm. roles we took 100% stakes yeah. no this will be a fund we will invest so you'll only ever do minority correct okay let's let's wind the clock right back first proper job first proper job I like the way you said that. Almost British. First proper job. Absolutely. So my first proper job wasn't a proper job, but led into something that, that did. So, so um, when I was 13, I had a newspaper round. Uh, now, I grew up in Canada. And in Canada, the whole business with delivery of newspapers is totally different. So, you know, I, I lived in a medium-sized city population, probably then was about 250,000, 300,000. Um, there were two local newspapers um, and I worked for the one that was the morning paper. Um, we had to have our newspapers delivered to all of the houses before 7 a.m. So it always shocks me when I'm out on a Sunday at, you know, 8.30 in the morning and I see the, the kids, you know, finally finishing delivering their papers. But anyway, the, the, what, one of the things that was completely different was we the, the job had two elements to it. One was delivery of the newspapers and the other one was going around to your customers every month and collecting money. Oh, right. Wow. And, and, so, and so I would collect in this money, and then I knew how much I had to pay the newspaper company, and I got and to keep the rest. Difference. And I don't know, I kind of geeked out over money. I thought it was really cool. And, you know, as a 13-year-old, all of a sudden I was having four or five hundred. It's a big responsibility as well. Yeah, it? completely. And so I always made sure that the, the, the bills were all completely uncrumpled and the queen's were you head was all fit. No, no, not at all. No, no, just, just, just straighten them out. I didn't iron them. But that, that would be a bit too far. But um, when, the, when the manager for the newspaper came around to collect the money from me, it was always perfectly laid out all, you know, and, and he, said he, he said he had horrible problems. And he said to me, he said, I think you like the money side of it. I said, I love the money side of it. And he said, well, look, we've got a couple of kids who are hopeless at the money side of it. They're very good at delivering the papers. How would you feel about collecting their money for it? And you just take a, you know, you get a slice of, of the, and I thought, great, that was fantastic. Because I was doing the part that I really enjoyed. I didn't have to get up at 4.30 in the morning to go and deliver the things. And I would end up, you know, doing the collections after school or in the yeah, evening. Yeah, what's a good or time to collect? Like, yeah, yeah you, around supper when time. When the homeowners Around home. supper yeah. time when people are in. And, you know, and, and, and little things would happen, like, like there was a little old lady who had a bad back and she couldn't bend down and pick up the newspaper if it was on her porch. So she said, could you please make sure it gets put into the letterbox? And so I put a note in for the person who was delivering the papers. Well, I got a $5 tip every month from her wow. because she got her papers in the, in the letterbox. Wow. And, and, and so, I, you know, I, I developed skills of, of, of dealing with money, dealing with customers, you know, interaction, handling complaints and all of that. So whilst I wouldn't say that being a, you know, a newspaper delivery boy was a proper job, it gave me skills yeah. that I've used throughout my life. Um, so then my first proper job, um, when I was 18, I uh, got a, a summer job while I was at university um, as a teller with the Royal Bank of Canada. And uh, so there I was, 18 years old, and um, on a day-to-day -day basis, I would have up to 10 grand in my custody that I would, you Do know, you have know to deal with. That must have been so much fun. There's it something so really cool. attractive about sitting behind a window with all the money laid out. Yeah, completely. I'm worried about you too. Completely. But <laughs> sounds great. But the coolest thing happened. It would have been my third summer with the bank. So I, I was 19 or 20 years old. I think it was just before I turned 20, and. The branch, I'd been in the same branch for two years and the branch manager wanted to, you know, 
pushed me a little bit, so I became the coin teller. Not, not that coins are worth a lot of money, but they take up a lot of space. So I had the biggest safe in the vault. And I remember coming in uh, one day after a, a bank holiday weekend, and the senior teller was off sick. And we had a number of large retailers that came in and did cash deposits. And so she was off sick. There was nowhere else to store the money. And so basically, I got the money in my vault because there was enough room for it. And, you know, when, when we, we cashed up for the night, we put special seals over the vault and I signed mine and the branch manager signed and, you know, all of these controls and checks and things were put in place. That was also a great thing for my pre-audit stuff, learning yeah. about mm-hmm. controls and checks and balances. But I remember cashing up and holding in my bare hands $100,000 in wow. cash. That was really cool. Wow. And you didn't throw it in the air? Nope. It's it's a funny thing, money, isn't it? Uh, that's an amazing experience because you have basically had sort of an entrepreneurial experience, a sort of mat. You had management with the the paper round and stuff, and then and then still, when your actual your actual first job is still very high responsibility. Yep. You know, it's yep. kind of and also dealing with your own. Maybe you have a little of it, but your own, or not much of it. But as in your own sense of vice or you know tendency to go, oh, this is this money. There's a there's a, a you know, in, when you work at McDonald's, the best thing you can do is make a giant Big Mac. You know what I mean? It's like you can't really go to town. You know. I mean, I felt a huge sense of responsibility. I remember the first time when I was. It was probably about two or three weeks in uh, to my first summer uh, working at the bank, and I cashed up, and I was out by ten bucks. And I recounted everything. I was, I mean, I was gutted. I just couldn't believe it. I'm sure what happened was somehow, somewhere, you know, because money would be moving around in in bundles of 100, 100 units of whatever the note was. So, yeah. so, 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 you know, a bundle of tens was a thousand dollars. And somehow, somewhere, there were only ninety nine in there, or or whatever. And I don't even remember if I was over. Or under. I think I was over. And so that actually worried me more because I thought, did I did I shortchange one of my customers? Yeah. Oh wow, yeah. You from a big family? You've got lots of brothers and sisters. I'm the youngest of four. I have uh, two sisters who are four and ten years older than me, and a brother who's eight years older. Are they all good with money, or are they um, varying degrees? They've all been reasonably reasonably successful in in what they do. My 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 sister, who's four years older, changed careers um, midlife and and became an IFA. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, she's she's pretty good with money. Although she keeps saying, "I I don't really know how I got here," but you know, I she did, and you know, she's done very well. Uh, she's you done were on well, the path to accountancy. It feels like from that. Uh, did you did it then dawn on you? Right, this is accountancy. I'm sort of interestingly. <clears throat> I was on a path to go into banking. Right. And in my third, at the end of my third summer, um, where I'd been at this branch for the two years, um, Canada at the time went into a big recession. And I remember getting a phone call from the branch manager and he said, you know, come in, let's have a chat. And he said, look, the bank has now frozen all of the management trainee hires. I have no idea how long this is going to go. And he looked at me and this was the first real career advice anyone had ever given me. He said, David, I'll give you a job as a teller. But David, you didn't go to university to be a bank teller, did you? And I thought, no, I didn't. And, And I went up to the campus recruitment office and the accounting firms were, were going to be there doing the milk round in about three weeks' time. And I had two friends whose dads were chartered accountants. And so I went and chatted with them. And, and they were so different. So one, he was the chief accountant of the university. And he was your quintessential chartered accountant. Right. The other one was a real estate developer. Um, but I sat down and talked with them. And, you know, what are the good things? What are the bad things? All of that kind of stuff. 
And, and then I applied. So that was back when it was the big eight. Um, and I got first round interviews with seven of them and Pricewaterhouse offered me a job. And what did you do at university? Uh, economics and German. This is very grown-up, sensible approach. I know, it's really organised. I mean, when I look what back everyone at else does. It's like, do you want to go talk to an accountant about a career in accountancy? It's what, fucking rather not, mate. I'm going down the pub if that's all the same mine, to you. Mine was more, I've got a degree in ancient Greek. What can I actually do? Absolutely nothing. I always laugh that, like, you go to the careers advisor and, you know, you, you, you could be, you should be a rock star. Let's say that. But the career advisor can't say to you, you should be a rock star. Because you can't go home to mum and dad and say, career advisor says rock star, not accountant. So what's your biggest cock-up then, do you think? Oh, my biggest cock-up. Uh, in 2010, I was, so I was the CFO of, a, of a, an aim-listed business. We had, uh, in, in, we, we, we did a wonderful acquisition at a very bad time. So we bought out our largest global competitor, put these two companies together, we ended up being in operational in 23 countries around the world. What industry is it, this? It was an online auctioneer of used industrial equipment. Really sexy wow. stuff. Okay. Wow. So we we bought our largest competitor. And when was this? 2010. 2000 and oh, we, uh, no. 2008. The deal the deal completed in I think March of 2008. We did six months of integration. We came back to the market in late September, early October of 2008, said we've done everything as set out in the prospectus. We're on track, la-di-da. And a week later, Lehman Brothers went yeah. bust. And six million pounds of expected revenue in Q4 didn't materialize. And of course, when you've just done a massive global restructuring, you can't do much. So yeah. six million pounds fell all the way to the bottom line. Six months and four profit warnings later, the chief exec got fired. It wasn't his fault, but somebody had somebody to go. Somebody had to go, yeah. yeah. And they brought in a new guy and he and I didn't get on and I had a midlife crisis. We're going to do everything differently. I had a midlife crisis and decided I, I decided I wanted to do something I was really passionate about. And it boiled down to either music or wine. And my two then teenage daughters looked at me and said, Dad, you're too old for the music <laughs> business, but wine would be perfect. So I launched a wine business in uh, the tail end of 2010 in the depths of the post-global financial Still not financial a great crash. idea to not a very to do anything. Wine business. Um, the, it was going to be importing and trading and dealing, and it was going to be an amazing thing. Online, I was so I, naked no, no, it wasn't going to be online. I was actually deliberately doing it where it was going to be a very personalized service. Right. Um, and then I discovered the competitiveness of the online world where I would go out and, you know, I would go out and try wines. I'd go to tastings. I'd come back and I'd go to my clients and recommend wines to them that I had personally selected. <laughs> and then they'd go. And then they'd say, well, else. I can get that for a pound cheaper over here. Yeah. And it was just like, fuck off. Yeah. yeah. And, and not, you know, not fuck off to them as human beings, but fuck off no, to them in terms of the... No, but if you want a premium yeah, service, yeah, exactly. pay exactly. for the premium service. It, exactly. Don't use your expertise exactly. and go elsewhere. So I, so I tried that for, I tried that for probably two years longer than I should have. Uh, my wife realized within about six months that it wasn't mm. working. It took me two and a half years to admit to myself that it wasn't working. Yeah. But I still have the wine business today. It's a hobby business. I've got half a dozen people who've been with me now for 12 years. They put money in my bank account and I send them wine. Okay, now here's a bit of geeking out as an accountant. But, but you know, the average price of a bottle of wine in the UK is still under a fiver. Yeah, it's 490 or something. So, so I'm just going to say yeah, it's yeah. 480 to make the math yeah, easier, yeah. right? So back off the VAT, it's four quid. Yeah. There's £2.36 of excise duty on that. Yeah. So that leaves you, got you a, glass bottle. a pound... 
That leaves you a pound 64 to cover owning the land, planting the grapes, growing the grapes, picking the grapes, uh, vinifying them, storing them, bottling them, shipping them, wholesaler's margin, retailer's margin. There ain't a lot in it. What do you find most uncomfortable about being in business? Given the natures of the roles I've had over my career, I've had to let lots of people go. Uh, And since I've run my own business, sometimes I've had to fire clients uh, and, mm. and I always agonize over it. Um, I'm a very people person and, and, and I, you know, I know, I know I have to do it and I do do it, but that's the thing that I'm most uncomfortable with. Fire clients. F- firing clients and, and firing staff. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, firing, firing clients sucks because it's so much work to go out and win them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things, one of the things I love about running my own business is that I can choose who I will or won't work with. Yeah. And I've had opportunities put in front of me that would have been very lucrative, but I just looked at the people and I thought, I'm not no. going to work with you. No way. So occasionally I get it wrong and I have to fire a client because we don't get on. In regard to the em- employees and stuff, what do you think about UK employment law? Do you think it's about right? or? Um, I mean, I've done a lot of work around Europe. Uh, obviously, earlier in my career, I was in North America where you can fire people on a whim. But don't uh, they all sue you or something? Well, it's not as simple as that that I've been told. Not, not totally. Not to, I, mean, I mean, the United States, it's much, much easier in the United States. Canada has a bit more protection in it. But I, I, I think in contrast to many countries around Europe, I think the UK has a reasonable balance to it. I mean, when I was in my first PLC, we acquired a business in um, France Oh my God. Um, and we had to go through the whole economic and social union mm. negotiations and, and all of that kind of stuff. We actually, we actually had, we had to have a board meeting at, immediately after completion of the deal where we had to literally read out the script of a board meeting where I fired the chief executive of the company that we had acquired in order to, for him to get the maximum social benefit out of the French system. Wow. And then all of the other, because we did this combination and put these two businesses together and they were surplus to requirements. Um, we just, you know, you have to go through the process and it's expensive, but as long as you follow the process, it's okay, you can do it. it you know, it takes a little longer, it's a little more expensive, but, but it's there for a reason. Play the game, as they Play say. Play the game. And what do you think is most misunderstood about being in business or being an employer? Most misunderstood. I think, and and this is a specific UK kind of response, Mm -hmm. I think in this country there are a lot of people who think all entrepreneurs are fabulously wealthy and it's not really fair and how come they get it all and we don't and, oh, they're all overnight successes. There's a lot of envy. Yeah, there is a lot of envy. A lot of resentment to success. And, yeah, and, um, you know, and this whole concept of overnight success, well, you know, maybe... Maybe not point not one percent of of you know wealthy entrepreneurs are overnight successes. Most of them have been slogging it out for you know five, ten, twenty years. And you know even even if you look at the more extreme examples like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, you know when they started out. I mean when Bezos launched Amazon in what was it the late nineties or the very very early two thousands. Mm. You know and it was going to be this online bookshop. Well, why would anybody buy books online? Yeah, I remember. This isn't going to work and Called all of that. Called Amazon exactly. And, and the crazy thing is, most of the money that Amazon makes today actually comes from Amazon Web Services. 
It's uh, you're absolutely right that you just normally haven't heard about it. Or I, I don't think I've ever met anyone who hasn't really made it in in less than ten years. It's a sort of ten year rule, really. For me, my theory is that there's there's something about the the, the mega rich, which is what are who are in the press that don't tend to pay a lot of tax. That creating this anger that sort of brandishes everyone who's successful. Well, you've you know? got you've got that you've definitely got the tax angle, but but the other thing that that a lot of people don't necessarily know is um, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates uh, have put together something called the I think it's called the Global Pledge or the Wealth Pledge or something like that, and they've now got a pool of out of the top 100 most wealthy people, something like 65 of them have now pledged that they will give at least 50% of their wealth when they die into this foundation to improve what's going on in the world. And, you know, look at, look at, look at what Bill Gates has done, well, Bill and his former wife, Melinda, what they did with the whole Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You know, they've nearly wiped out malaria. They're dealing with all sorts of things. I mean, Bill Gates was on the, on the television five years ago saying the biggest problem facing the world is going to be some kind of a pandemic. Yeah. And nobody mm. paid attention to it. But that's, you know, that's... America and America appears to be better or much better at philanthropy than we are. It's sort of the flip side of the American dream. You know, anybody can do it if they just work hard enough. And I think we have a bit of a reaction to that in the UK that yeah. it's kind of like, yeah, perhaps, we're not like that. Perhaps, although I know some very successful entrepreneurs here. Uh, I, I think one of the things that's really helped um, has been the um, promotion of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And, and that's led to a lot of people becoming kind of aware of, you know, well, it's not just I'm going to give money to the Red Cross because my grand gave money to the Red yeah. Cross, but actually let's look at charities that are out there solving some of the world's bigger problems. And, and I've certainly seen a lot of entrepreneurs in this country who are starting to look at that as part of their pledge and, and indeed often build it into their business. Yeah. So within funding focus, the educational side of the business, the one that I launched a couple of years ago, not, not the fund, because that's different. Um, but we give 5% of our revenue to charitable causes. But I mean, there's a good reference here, which is the CEO of uh, NatWest is a woman and she was very involved. I forget her name. but Alison Rose. Alison Rose, that's it. And so, I mean, any NatWest, uh, you know, big, big up NatWest Bank, because you're all pretty terrible, but you're definitely one of the least worst. But, you know, I notice now, so if you want to, renew your funding with them. You have to have environment. What are you doing for the environment? What are you doing for sustainability? If you're not, they're out. Well, their subsidiary Coots recently qualified as a B Corporation. Did it really? Yes. Okay. I was just in Coots offices, which are very nice. They've got some very big goldfish. Yes, they do. <laughs> and now a quick word from our sponsor. Clark got its start back in 1935 And while the world has changed a bit It's more than just survived From complying with the FCA And all things financy They can also speak fluently In the language of legalese Ori Clark was born and raised Right here in the UK And now for 20 years They've been helping others Get set up and on their way Ori Clark's doors always open and happy to provide straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. Big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle. You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram. 
And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. And how did you find it going from, which you've clearly done a few times, going from the founder of a business and the, you know, the sort of sole owner of the business and it's your baby to those kind of growing pains and it becoming something yep. more? Yep. And, and, and it's so interesting because I also advise founders on what to do. And, and, and I keep telling founders, you know, you've got to let go. You've got to let go. You've got to hire in more people. The only way you're going to scale beyond a certain level is to bring in more skilled people. And then when you're faced with doing that yourself, it's hard. But yeah. letting go and trusting in other people is the only way you can grow a business. And, and you know, one of the things, and again, this, this links back to the, the whole idea of the million pound turnover threshold because once you've got the business to that size, you're either in an incredibly lucky space where it's just you kind of driving it with a, with a small team of people, or you've already started to make some of those structural changes and you might have hired in a, a, a sales and marketing manager and you might have hired in an operations manager and you might have a part-time financial controller where you're, you, you, you've got responsible people handling those areas of the business so that you can elevate yourself as the founder and be, you know, you'll still get involved in the really big, important projects, but you'll be more the outward face of the business. You'll be the visionary. You'll be the person in charge of the brand and the culture and, and leading things like that and have a team of people who will help you to grow a business. Because without that team of people, you'll never get to five million. Well, one of your books was about how to think like a big business, but even though you're a small business. I mean, strangely in that, in that um, statement, it's like, Big, big being in a big business is you know I, I have I deal with them obviously as the clients and the bigger they are the more there's a board the more decision making takes time and there's it's a lot of machinery so it's it's not a very attractive thing to do in a way is that is that part well, of the problem so, no but the, so the, the 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 actual subtitle of the book was how small businesses can think like big businesses and achieve exponential growth right and it was all about. The, the content of that book, and by the way, I've got a copy for you. Great. Um, and you. Um, the content of that book is all about raising capital and buying other companies. Right. Okay. And, and, and it's really interesting because, the, and again, this is one of those things that, that in, in the marketplace bugs me. There are quite a few people who are out there saying, oh, go out and buy a company for a pound and, you know, fix it and turn it around and, you know, gear it up and whatever. But, you know, you don't have to put any of your money down type of thing. And, and to me, you know, why would you buy a shitty company that was about to go bust for a pound when you could buy something good? You can raise money. If you're going to buy something really solid and good, you can raise money to get the backing for it. So do that. You know, as, 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 Warren, as Warren Buffett said, I would far rather buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. And actually, that's interesting. So, so to stop to make people think so outside of the box that you can go buy a company because people, you know, if, especially if you're, that's where the banks will end. If you've managed to get a million quid and you're kind of going somewhere, and you can say we can finance this debt, yeah. is it? You know, wow, okay. And then because acquisition is is thought with the, the road to acquisition is thought with difficulties because you start melding cultures. And yes, that's, I mean, yeah. what's your advice for that? Just well, so so within the book, I talk about four steps that, like any good consultant has a little acronym methodology. So mine is called FACE, which stands for Fund, Acquire, Consolidate, and Exit. Yeah. And the consolidate phase is all about putting companies together. Um, and so in the book, I set out my experiences in terms of all of the different acquisitions that I've done. 
I think I've done, I've bought 20 companies and sold four. Um, so it's all about what are the cultural issues? What are the procedural issues? How do you deal with the people? Um, you know, my first acquisitions were in the PR industry where your assets walk out of the door every night. Mm. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Uh, then when I went into the PLC world, uh, my first PLC uh, was a digital media and publishing business. So the assets were publishing rights. Um, and we actually had a policy that when we acquired a company, we didn't want the founders to stick around because, it, you know, they now had a, a, a ton of money and off they went. We didn't want them meddling in the business. Yeah. So two totally, you know, different structures. In PR, it was like, okay, how do we keep these guys locked in with an earnout? You know, we, we know they're going to go go after three or four years. Maybe 10% of them will stick around a little bit longer, but they're all going to go. But how do we keep them long enough so that we can get that transition? Whereas with, with the publishing one, it was, right, great, thanks very much. And, and what's the hardest thing in your job then? What's the hardest thing in my job? Yeah, again, dealing with difficult people. Any advice for dealing with difficult people? Try and figure it out. See if you can sit down and resolve issues. And if you can't resolve issues, part company as amicably as you can, because there's, you know, why? It's never why, gonna why, get better. It's never gonna yeah. get better. Why bang your head against the wall? Why pull teeth? You know, sometimes we make mistakes. It's not that I'm bad. It's not that the other person's bad. It's just that the two of us together don't work. It can be. I, I mean, I think sometimes people are just, they're not happy. They're having a bad life or that something bad is going on in their life. And they, you know. Yeah, but you, if, if you have somebody that brings that to work every day, then yeah. that's not somebody. You it's, want yeah, it's, 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 it's the same if you've got a, a, a team member that's not fitting in and is causing all sorts of problems. And, and you know, over my, over my years, I, I mean, when I, when I left um, Pricewaterhouse PwC, I spent the first 10, 11 years in my career in big corporates. And, 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 you know, this was during the 90s. And I mean, I did rounds of redundancy. I've lost count of the number of people I've had to let go in firms. I, I, I'm not proud of it. It just, it's life. it was my job and that was life. But I just feel that if you've got someone who doesn't fit, getting rid of them is easy. It's much harder if you've got people who fit, but it's like the business has shrunk and you've just got to make people redundant. I mean, I, when I moved from Switzerland to the UK, I was working for a company. I had 93 people reporting to me. Within six weeks of being there, I had to let 10 of them go. Wow. I didn't even know them. So I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway, and we can talk about it again. What are you most excited for about your business going Oh, forward? the fund. Absolutely, 100%. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Getting past the regulator is step one. Getting past the regulator is step one. And, you know, I accept fully that regulators are there for a reason. But, you know, I, 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 not think, I, think, I think the pendulum of regulation has swung a little too far uh, in, in terms of over-regulation and stuff. So, so... Given the specifics of, of our fund, we are required to register. We're not seeking FCA approval because we are below a certain threshold under the law, et cetera, et cetera. But we're still having to jump through the same hoops to register, almost the same hoops to register as to become approved. And what's the one thing you would change in this world if you could in the future? Oh, one thing I would change in this. This is world. what we call our Miss Universe question. Yeah, well, it's it's actually good oh, that you it's it's actually good that you put it in that context because when when I look at the shit going on in the world right now, I would and 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 when I was growing up as a kid, I was a big Star Trek fan, original series Star Trek, and and I next loved, generation. Yeah, yeah, I got mm. into that later, but. Uh, 
No, Captain Kurt was the best. Okay. Um, but but you know even then, and, and when you think about it, that was back in the 1960s, and they taught you know they had interracial and they had women on the bridge and they had you know ethnic minorities on the bridge and 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 I think the first interracial kiss yeah. on television yeah. was Captain Kirk and Lieutenant Uhura. Yeah. And Don't blame me. well, and and but but they had this thing where you know they said oh yeah back in the 20th century Earth had all these problems but we got over them mm. you know we ended wars so what would I change I'd end wars well I'd, peace. I'd end I yeah do you think why if women not? are in charge we'd have wars I mean, that's a hugely impossible question that's a hugely impossible question I think I think you know less likely to I think I think the madness going on in Eastern Europe right now uh, would not happen if you know if there were female leaders in there. Best piece of advice you've ever been given? The best piece of advice I ever got was to uh, invest in yourself and your people. Invest in people, invest in education. When I left working for Price Waterhouse, I worked for a big computer company and we had a big training division. And the guy who ran the training division had a poster up in his office that said, if you think education is expensive, try ignorance. Oh, that's a brilliant line. Yeah, that is good. Yeah, when every time you get a sentence that nails it, it's so helpful. Yeah, and that was, God, that was 30 years ago, and I still remember. I can still picture the poster. Top three reads, pods, records, whatever you want. Well, want okay, do. records. Let's do records. Yeah. Records? Okay. Uh, number one, Close to the Edge by Yes. Oh, wow. Came out in, I think, 1972. What was the big song on that album? Well, this was prog rock, so there were yeah. only three songs on the whole album. One of them was 18 and a half minutes long, and the wow. other two were about 10 minutes long. Brilliant, oh. here we come. Yeah, so that'd be number one. Let's get more recent Green by R.E.M. And then in more recent days, let's see, I'm an old guy, I like old music. You can uh, have old music, that's fine. There's young people who like old music. There are young people who are like, yeah, well, okay, okay, cool. Then then if we're going to do that, I'll go back to my prog roots, uh, Genesis Trespass. Genesis. Ah, Genesis. It, was their, it was their second album. But I'll give you three books as well. Um, so, so three books, in addition, of course, to my own, but that, that's... Yeah, yeah, well, do so, you want to plug your own book? I'll, I'll do that in time. a minute, yeah. So, so book number one uh, by an author called Mike Dooley who was a CPA trained with Pricewaterhouse. He was with Pricewaterhouse at the same time as I was. Um, and he wrote a book called, well, he's written a bunch of books, but he wrote one called Infinite Possibilities. Excellent book. Business book, is that? Uh, no, more life and spirituality and possibility. Cool. Okay, that's quite cool. Um, but I think anyone who's in business should, should read it. Um, number two, uh, Daniel Priestley, Entrepreneur Revolution. What do you like about that one? Uh, so I know Daniel really well, and um, it's all about basically the time is right in the world for people to set up small businesses. They don't need they don't need to think you know I'm going to have a corner shop. You can have a small business with a global customer base and a global reach and all of that. And and he sets it out. You know, here's what you need to do to to, to get it up and up don't and running afraid. and off the ground. Don't be afraid. And number three, because I'm a total Warren Buffett geek, uh, was a book by, I think her name was Alice Schroeder. Yeah. And it's called uh, Snowball, The Business of Life from Warren Buffett. Okay. She sort of wrote it about him. Is it's, it? it's a biography. It's a yeah. biography. Yeah. I was going to say, because he's quite autistic, isn't he? I can't imagine he's a huge writer anyway. But he's, and he's, but he's still running, you know, he's still running a phenomenal com company. He's, he's 92 years old. His partner, wow. Charlie Munger, is 93. I read something recently 
that since his company, which I call Berkshire Hathaway, but most people, well, people in America will call Berkshire, 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 Berkshire. Hathaway. Um, since he launched that business in, I think, 1963, it has outperformed the S&P index by something like 200 times. Oh my God. And well, he, he does it on such fundamental principles, doesn't it? You know, he does. just looks for good businesses he and good brands. He looks for good businesses that he understands. Okay, so this brings us to our favorite part of the show, the business versus bullshit quick far round. DQ the music. Thank you very much. This is where we're going to reel off a list of key terms, David. And all you've got to do is tell us whether you think it is business or bullshit. We will be marking you. There are penalties. Fine. <laughs> are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Diversity quotas. Business. Damn straight. Stand-up meetings. I'm going to lean business, but yeah, only just. Mm. Only just. On the cusp. Caffeine. I gave up caffeine six years ago, but I know most people struggle with that. Um, Is it business? Is it life? Why did you Um, give it up? It's not bullshit. Um, I was working with a fitness coach and and she said I was hyper enough already. (laughs) Right. Okay, very good. So what was your answer then? What you're going for? In the knowledge that most employees would struggle if there was no caffeine, I have to say business. Very good. Agendas, meeting agendas. Meeting agendas. Business within reason. But if you have a meeting to discuss the meeting agenda, then, then that's bullshit. Crazy. Okay, yeah. very good. And um, I, did, I, 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 have, I have first-hand experience of that. I spent three years at the BBC. Uh, wow, yeah. Hour-long meetings. Hour-long meetings, it, it depends, um, as long as it's properly structured and clear business. We have a, we have a category called biz shit, if you can't decide. Ah, okay. All right, yeah, biz I'm shit. sort of slightly it, invented It that. depends, I'm, but biz shit. Yeah. Most of these are going to get a biz shit, I think. <laughs> no, 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 I don't like to sit on the fence. <laughs> office dogs. Office dogs? Well, you've got an it, office dog. Yeah, um, I that don't. that doesn't mean to say... No, you, I know. I, you, I, you know, I, I know a number of people in business who have you know, bring their dog in. Um, to me, it's perfectly fine. Some people might not like it. So, yeah. Whatever. I mind. Business, Bish. whatever. Yeah, biz shit. No, no, business. Business. Carbon credits. Oh, business. Uh, swearing in meetings. Fuck. <laughs> business. business. Yeah, well, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to qualify that. Um, not corporate business, entrepreneurial business, definitely. Yeah. I've never met a group of people who swear as much as entrepreneurs, and that's why I love working with entrepreneurs. They've got a lot to swear about. Damn straight. Um, pub lunches. Oh, sorry. Pub lunches. You know, 30 years ago, it would have been business. Now it's bullshit. Mm. The, yeah. the, the, you, you, drinking in the middle of the day. You know, every now and then you might get away with it, but, you know, long liquid lunches, that's long gone. Mm. Well. <laughs> B-Corps. Oh, business. Uh, NDAs. Business. Unlimited holidays. Oh. There are a few brave companies that do that and seem to have done it really well. Uh, I think most companies would struggle with that cultural, so I'm going to say bullshit. LinkedIn. Business. And finally, formal work clothes. Oh, bullshit. 
Very for, good. Last, for the last two years, we've all been in our pajama bottoms and, a, and, and whatever we want, you know? I mean. But you're well dressed today. I'm wearing a jacket. A jacket, yeah. That's, that, that is the trick, the, the, the jacket to cover a thousand sins, really. Yeah, very good. Um, excellent. That's the end of the quick fire round. This is where we give you 30 seconds to pitch your company, your podcast, your book, uh, whatever you want to. Okay. Off you go, David. Okay, so uh, two things. Number one, my book, well, my books. So my first book is called Add Then Multiply. It's available on Amazon. It's an award-winning number one bestseller. Uh, teaches business owners on uh, how to scale their companies through raising capital and buying other companies. Um, I've also been told by a lot of people that there's a lot of good, just really general business advice. And lots of people have said, you know, every entrepreneur should read it. So go ahead, entrepreneurs, read it. My second book is called Funded Female Founders. It will be coming out in the summer of 2022. And it is all about leveling the playing field, which we spent a lot of time talking about. And my business, yeah, I I, I mean, I have a consulting business, but my real passion is going to be launching the fund. So please watch this space. And if you're an institutional investor who wants to support what we're doing, uh, get in touch. Fantastic. And if they, the listeners want to get in touch with you and find out more about you, where do they do that? Easiest way is um, to go on to LinkedIn and it's David B. Horn. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you to David for joining us. Thank you, Pippa, my co-host. A big thank you to you, dear listener. In the meantime, if you have any time, and I'm sure you don't have any time because you've got a life to live, but do please rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, whatever you listen to your podcast on. And remember to follow us on at B-I-Z without B-S. Until next time, it's ciao. Ciao.